Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Gavin Tolometti. And I am your co-host, Nick Hanfield-Jones. And we are here with Laura Munoz. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Uh, so, uh, what uh, department uh, are you uh, here at Western? I'm in microbiology and immunology. Okay, and uh, is there a specific uh, field in biology and immunology that you focus on? Not really. Like, I'm not sure why I, I belong to that department. I just think that my PI had some founding in that department. But actually, I do something completely different, which is um, bioinformatics and virus evolution. So I think I think it's really different from what most of the people do there. Okay, so uh, bioinformatics. Yeah. yeah. So what is bioinformatics? So bioinformatics is trying to um, use the genetic code that we all have, like in our DNAs, for example, and try to get patterns out of it like try to decipher that information and understand what they contain, basically. So as you probably know, viruses as humans also have like some genetic material that can be DNA or RNA. And from that material, you can extract the information that is needed for the virus to replicate or to codify their different parts. So yeah. So tell me about that. How exactly did you get into this field that doesn't necessarily belong to what you're studying. What, what do you mean? So how did you get into the field of microbiology even though you study bioinformatics? Oh, uh, it's, I don't think my microbiology is my field, it's just that department I belong yeah. to because my prof is from that department. Yeah, so tell me how you got to working with your prof. Oh, well, uh, I'm from Colombia mm-hmm. uh, and I did my undergrad and my master's there. But I really like bioinformatics and I love viruses. That's what I did my master's on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was looking for something that will combine the things that I like the most, which are bioinformatics, viruses, and evolution. Uh, so I was Googling around and I found this prof and he had like a position for a PhD student. I applied to several places. So um, I, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Australia, to Europe or here but I wanted to be closer from home. You wanted to go to the frigid wasteland. <laughs> yeah, then I regretted it. Yeah. <laughs> the great white north. <laughs> yes. Yeah, then I said, why am I here? I, yeah. I can be like in a warm Australia. But <laughs> yeah, it's challenging and it's, I don't know, cool. You had the choice of frozen Canada, hot Australia, or the wet Europe. That's right. So <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so are you, you're doing your PhD. What year are you in? We're um, second year now. Second year. So how are you adjusting to the PhD life, but also mixed in with being in a new country? Well, uh, the first year was horrible. Like mm-hmm. the first winter for me, I was, Brutal. It, it was really bad, like really bad. I just wanted to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Not because of the PhD, like my PI is amazing. He's, yeah. he's a really cool guy. And What's I, his name? Uh, Art Boone. Okay, cool. And I really love his projects and like his approach to science because he's all about like open science and open source software and i really like that but the the winter was rough like it was so much snow i was freezing all the time there was no sun that i've never experienced before and i i really miss the sun so it was well i gotta tell you i'm from canada and you want to go home and i want to leave home during the winter so i definitely understand what you're feeling i don't know what you guys are talking about i love the snow i mean Yes, minus 40 degree weather is not always pleasant, but 
on, snow fo- snowball fight, snowmen. I'll take it for one day hills. of the year. That's all. One day. Honestly, when I just came <laughs> and I saw the snow, like the f- the first couple of weeks, it was amazing. I took pictures from for my family, but like by the end of February, I was like, please, I just need a big, a, co- a warm. <laughs> Yeah. To be, I will admit the end of February and winter here is yes. pretty gross. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And yet, despite this, you have decided to stay and continue on. So what keeps you here? Well, as I said, my prof, like, he really inspired me. I think he's really cool. And also, I, I really think that my project is super interesting. And to be fair, Canada is, like, a really nice... Like, I think that people compensate the weather with being really nice okay. and welcoming, and it's good for me that I I am I am in a place where I don't feel like I absolutely don't belong. No, mm-hmm. I I feel comfortable and I like that feeling as well. And also, it's closer from home, right? Like mm-hmm. a ticket to Colombia can cost like six hundred bucks. Yeah. yeah. So that's not too bad. So why don't you tell us a bit about your project? Can you walk us through sort of the basics of what you're studying? Yeah, for sure. So. Um, viruses, uh, there's a debate uh, whether viruses are living entities or no. But um, what do we, what we do know is that they do have like uh, Darwinian evolution, so they improve and they get better, and they're in a constant race, race like arm race with their host, trying to adapt, because we as hosts we are also fighting against them, right? So I think viruses are like a very interesting system that sometimes we don't pay as much attention as we should sometimes it's only we we study viruses only when they're like pathogenic so they will cause diseases but a lot of times they're just there and they're doing cool stuff well i'm sure that we have many viruses in us that are perfectly healthy right uh even viruses are essential for yeah like uh, we have we are as we are mammals because of viruses because viruses gave us the opportunity to have placenta mm-hmm so that's like part of it. Like viruses are essential for shaping evolutionary processes in life. So I think they're a really cool thing to study. Um, and also I'm really bad in wet lab because I'm really clumsy and I don't know. <laughs> and you told us before that you have, during your master's, you did do some of that, right? Yeah, so I yeah. used to do wet lab and extract the viruses and stuff, mm-hmm. but I was like horrible at it. So I decided, you know what, I just don't want to do this anymore I just want to be in a computer and if I break the computer it won't be a big issue like you you'll buy a next uh, another computer but sometimes you cannot buy a new sample right Mm -hmm. like every sample is special but I don't think computers are that special like you just you just find another one so yeah I I decided I want to also like I I want to be able to manage my my time and we're in the wet lab you you need to be there at the times the cells are growing or whatever, so. So it's a lot more freedom and it sounds like a computer-based lab than a, I can't even say, just like a wet lab then. Yeah. 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 And uh, so I'm guessing if it's a computer-based lab, is it mainly uh, modeling or simulations that you run? Yeah, what I'm uh, doing right now is trying to simulate uh, a, a very specific system of viruses because they have something called overlapping genes, and that is like... Imagine that the the genetic code it's a book, so the book has instructions. So every time you read like one page, you're getting instruction instructions out of it. But in overlapping genes in the book in the same page, like 
the same letters and the same organization can give you different inst instructions. So, yeah, like, do you understand? So, yeah. so basically, like, like a gene or something can do two different things, even though the, the letters are the same? Yeah, they're yeah. like, they're exactly, apparently the same message, mm -hmm. but the way you read it, uh, basically will give you different instruction instructions. And this is like really cool thing to study. And I'm simulating that, like that specific um, problem in viruses, because we don't really know how those instructions evolve over time. So I'm wondering about something called epigenetics, because when I was an undergrad, I learned that when th there can be a genetic sequence um, that can produce like two different proteins or do two different things based on, for example, if it's been modified by like phosphorylation or something. Are you talking about that or is this something completely separate? No, epigen epigenetics is different because it is uh, how the information is available available how do you say it yeah available, yeah, available. I guess. Ava available for <laughs> yeah. you to like get it so some pages can be marked so you know you need to read that pages oh. like in the book right so that's epigenetics is like which information it's like more easy for you to get like okay. to be access to but what i'm doing is not that it's not like with which part which parts of the book you're marking it's just like the entire book okay Mm -hmm. So what are the kind of things that an overlapping gene can do? Like what, for example, like what are two different different behaviors or whatever can be like uh, instructed by these overlapping? Oh, like every kind of genes. Like basically viruses are really small, like really, really small. Actually, the first time viruses were described were described like small things that make us sick. Like that, that was all they knew. Mm -hmm. um, so because they are really small, they need to package their genome in, re in like really small books, let's say, just to continue yep. with that approach mm -hmm. okay. that I think is more like easily for everyone. So their books ha has to be really small. So for them to have a lot of in instructions in a really small book, they develop this ability to have in the same page different kind of information. Um, so like every basically every kind of protein that they encode can be part of an overlapping gene. And are these overlapping genes in bacteria and in other organisms, like even mammals and stuff? Yeah, um, they thought to be to be specific on viruses, but now we discovered that they're actually everywhere. It's just like they're a lot, a lot less common mm. because we have a we as humans, for example, our cells has a, have a lot of space mm -hmm. to like store that information. So could um, one of these overlapping genes, for example, encode for, I don't know, virus duplication and also like virus movement, like something like that? Yes. Okay, that was like a simple example, but basically like something like that. Yeah, like viruses don't have like any movement protein that I know. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First thing that came to head, I know nothing no, about that, viruses. No, that's but cool, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like different instructions, yeah, can be in the same and now you're relating this to evolution, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell us about that. Okay, so the way we understand evolution in viruses is that we generate a mutation in the genome, like as a change in that book. And given that change, the book will give instructions that will allow the virus to fit better into the environment, right? So 
the thing with this uh, specific part is that if you change one word in that book, it will be affecting two different instructions, not only one. That's each, and that's usually what happens, right? You just change one word and you get a different instructions, but now you're changing the same word and affecting two different instructions, so it has a bigger reper repercussion. And that's something that is really hard to study, and I'm, so I'm trying to model it through like computers. Have there been any examples where they've changed one genome to see what the two like changes would be? Uh, I don't know that of any experiment, like real life experiment, but what I'm doing with my modeling is, yes, we're seeing that it affects like profoundly the both of the, of the instructions that it gives. And you're looking at just viruses in general, you're not focusing on a particular type of virus from a certain species or anything? Yes, uh, viruses, like every virus basically um, can have an overlapping gene. So yeah, I just want to be able to model it for every kind of system. Like even, even like in theory, if you have a bacteria that you want to evaluate overlapping genes, you could use it in my, like in my modulation system, but it's not designed for that. But I mean, eventually when it's ready, it's, <laughs> it's not ready yet. So tell us a little bit, you've, you've been talking about modeling this evolutionary process. Tell us a little bit about this modeling like obviously it's on the computer it's through some sort of computer language right yeah how do you even begin this process like where did you start oh what i start doing is calling my pi and saying i don't know what to do okay yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the first step afterwards uh so i know uh before i came here i knew like some basics of computer programming uh, but here I had to learn Python, which okay. is like the language that we mostly use in our lab, Python and R. So uh, in Python, you basically can has, have as an input that book, like that book on, uh, of instructions, and try to like change the, like, the processes that can act over that book. And so see how, how long it are these books? Time. Are we talking like millions of letters, for example? Um, or? Not like... It should run like so far. I'm I'm just running it with 100 nucleotides okay. because yeah. it's like very computational sure, expensive. Sure, sure. But yeah. that's really bad. I want to. I have to make it like more efficient. Right. But we're like a virus genome can can be like 1,000 nucleotides, mm -hmm. or some can be a lot more longer. But th than that. But so I'm guessing the eventually you'll you'll your model will slowly develop to be able to incorporate an exact number of letters that a real, vi an actual virus would Yeah, like closer to reality, yeah. Like okay. right now it's just working on really small genomes that are not like real. Okay. And the two languages you use, you learned Python when mm -hmm. you got here. You mentioned R. See, I'm fam very familiar with Python, but I've actually never heard of the language R before. Oh, uh, R is a language that it's super useful pl for plotting. So that's why what we mainly use it for, or statistics as well. So plotting graphs. Plotting that's graphs, yes. Why am I not been using this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what what do you use? N neither. I'm still a 
a noob that uses Excel because he hasn't got the time to I learn the code. Yes. I know. It's really bad. <laughs> so stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I do. The supervisors hinted constantly like, you should use Python or MATLAB and MATLAB, plot everything. Yes. And I'm like, I would love to, but I need the time to learn how to one, write that script. Yeah. Mm-hmm. R is, gr- is great for plotting and it has so many libraries because it's an open source program. So like, it's, it's basically super like, like um, it's not friendly to learn no but after you learn a little bit of it you'll see that everyone has done what you want to have so you just take a library that someone else wrote and you use it so ggr plot right that's like the yeah. famous one right yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> okay ggr plot I might that's to get the that. r code that's really helpful for graphs it oh. makes pretty graphs yeah. yes okay yeah. I'm gonna plot. Well, i know what i'm doing tomorrow yes <laughs> <laughs> now once so you put in your um nucleotide code what is the output what comes up what do you hope to get um once you put it into this code that you have your black box right what comes out the other side okay so my the inputs for my pipeline it's the genetic code and also a phylogenetic tree i don't know if you're familiar with that like an evolutionary tree yeah like, an evolutionary okay they're coming tree. from a, like a common ancestor and slowly branching yes. out okay mm-hmm. yeah so what I'm doing is I'm evolving that sequence as an input throughout the phylogenetic tree. And as an, as an output, I have the same genome, but evolved in all of the tips of the tree. So I have like a repeated version of the genome, but evolved. So I know how it changed over time and how the differentiation, like how it could have the branching events happened. So you get to see your own tree slowly change as you change the genome every single time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can actually visually create your own phylogenetic tree Mm -hmm. for viruses. Yes, it's like doing, like, trying to simulate evolution. How, yeah. Have you seen it? um, I mean, I don't know if there's already, like, been, like, some phylogenetic trees created already for viruses, if there have been, have you been able to compare what you've generated thus far? Oh, to? I, I haven't generated any. Like, I've just generated, like, some test ones. So oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just starting. But eventually, yes, I will have to uh, compare it with real trees uh, and see how well my pipeline is it's doing. So from what I'm understanding, basically what you're doing is you're taking this blank sort of phylogenetic tree with all these different paths right but you don't know necessarily what's on each like turning point of that path and then you're putting it into this uh, software with just your initial sequence and basically through your uh, computer like algorithm it's going to fill in those gaps right yes okay that's cool so where are you right now and what are you hoping to do as you continue through the phd uh so how i say like the how I said before, my pipeline is just um, really inefficient right now. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm just starting. Uh, so I need to make it more efficient. I need to make it faster. I need it to make because right now I can run a long genome and it will take like hours. I don't want that. I want to be able to run it faster. So there's a big optimization step step that I know it's going to it's going to take some time. But afterwards, after that, I want to take um, some other models that other people have done before and try to 
use it as an input to my simulation and see how all those other models actually work mm. for my system, like to compare. And eventually what I want to be able to do is to predict overlapping genes in viruses because a lot of viruses we don't really know what they are or what they have but like 80 percent of what the sequences that we have we don't really know what they are we just know they are there and we think that a lot of those sequences are usually uh, from viruses right so do you mean sequences within humans Sequences within everything. Okay. Like sometimes we just take uh, some like sample of the sea and sequence all of it, and there's a lot of stuff there that okay. we we're like we don't know what that is, uh, and we think that that must be viruses or something similar. So I want to be able for my model to predict that there are overlapping mm. genes on those sequences and that could be like an idea because it has different evolutionary pressures like it doesn't behave as other systems does so it could be a predictive system for eventually like discovering viruses or discovering overlapping genes in general and i'm guessing it could also i mean could it also be applied to understanding the the one, the mutation and evolution of like deadly viruses that we try to understand that make people very sick. Yes, as well. Yeah. Uh, yes, of course. Like right now, um, the one I'm using as an input is an herpes virus. So of course I can use it like in any kind of also pathogenic viruses. It's just that I'm not focusing on, on that. But if anyone wants to use my pipeline, of course. <laughs> So I'm wondering sort of like, yeah, like the, like the application of this, like, cause uh, from what I understand, it sort of explains like the evolutionary history of something. Um, will that sort of help us understand the function or like what this virus does or? Okay. So what, one really important thing that I didn't said before is that overlapping genes are thought to be used for viruses as for creation of new genes, so for entirely new instructions. And this is really important because real basically a gene is what contains the information that gives anything what it does or what it has. So basically um, these genes are going to be cool. Like if I, if I am able to develop this model very well, uh, I want to like further study this, the creation of these new genes from the overlapping sequences. So are these genes like within the viruses only or like is, is this sort of process that, uh, is this a process that happens in other organisms too? Well, it, it haven't been confirmed in okay. other organisms, but there's a theory because we don't really know how new genes are created. Like there are several mm -hmm. theories, but one of the theories that explain the creation of new genes are by this process called overlapping genes. So yeah. It, it is it could be everywhere not only in viruses that's really cool so what do you think um is sort of like the importance of no like knowing the or how these overlapping genes creating new genes like is we just don't know that yet uh like creation of new genes is yeah. creation of life right okay like it's creation of instructions for right. life so well, that's really cool so it could lead to a completely new 
mm-hmm. like type of virus or if it is present in organisms I more, guess. more than a type of virus a completely new gene itself that maybe it could attribute like completely different um, uh, characteristics to the virus or the organism that is evolving or organism like a bacteria or a cell in general well, that's really cool so before the show we were discussing a little bit about the software that you use and you use python how has it been working with that software to make this oh python is great yeah <laughs> Be- because python is like reading like reading is not like i mean it is a programming language but also it's like super friendly and super intuitive so i think python it's something that everyone should learn eventually mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think that probably in 20 years most people will know it they're teaching it like in schools to elementary kids yeah like they used to teach uh everything in java yeah but that's now, right. now now most of professors are changing to python yeah also because it's an open community yes so that's free cool. no money required yeah <laughs> although i have found when you try to learn python i mean it's always i know they ever i was always been told it's best to learn it like you just have to keep using it and trying new things. Yeah. But at the same time, you try to find like an exercise and there is still some you still have to purchase, which I found quite odd. Or at least once you get a certificate for oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah. But do you know, I've learned MATLAB and I find like, you know, you need to learn the basics, but then everything else is just a matter of Googling. Googling how to do stuff. I don't know if you find the same thing. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. Like that's a bigger ability I think I gained during yeah. my undergrad googling things was yeah everything yeah yeah, yeah. Well, no i have to i do the same thing with idl which is an interactive data language and most of the time it's an error pops up i have no idea what it's telling me so i have to like copy and paste the error code google mm-hmm. it and fingers crossed someone's come across it or mm-hmm. else i have to try to figure it out with my limited knowledge of computer science or talk to someone who knows yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's usually me contacting my supervisor if i stumped i'm like I need help here. <laughs> yeah. So, Laura, we're reaching the end of the episode. Um, I'm just wondering, sort of, what are your plans after you're done your PhD? Dare I ask? Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> the answer is I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I know that eventually I want to go back home mm-hmm. because Colombia has a lot of issues and I want my knowledge, my knowledge to be useful there. I love that. But um, I do think that maybe a postdoc will be a good idea before I go there. So I get to experience how it is to, like, investigate my own stuff. But, yeah, like, eventually I want to go back home. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, I think we are just about uh, out of time, unfortunately. But thank you so much for coming on. if there's uh, anyone that wants to learn more about your research, is there a website or do you have like a social media handle they can reach out to you? I have a Twitter. Uh, it's Laura underscore B-A-M seven. So if you want to reach me, that's the way. Okay. You heard it, you heard it now, folks. So that's how you can reach Laura. So uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Gavin, and my co-host was Nick. We've been speaking with Laura Munoz, and this episode was produced by Ariel. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. 
You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at, at @gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. and every other Thursday at 1.30 p.m. If you, all, you can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at, at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night. Yay! <laughs> First episode! <laughs>